This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. People have been telling me to stop swearing the first five seconds because it means I won't get monetized. Joke's on you. YouTube's never going to monetize me. I've got a flag and I'm white. It's not going to work out. But as, as always... The coolest podcasts are the ones that you, the listener, will unfortunately never hear. Dale always tells me the best shit before I start recording. And it's intentional, and I don't record for that reason. Because I don't want anything that's not supposed... Whatever. It's... But, uh... Um... Yeah, so jumping around, we talk about uh, uh, American Badass, Dale's book, which is badass. It's uh, it's for reasons I can't tell you. Dale is the coolest man who's ever lived. Maybe one day it'll all be declassified. But Dale's book will be in the description, sticking in the top comment. His Instagram, go follow that. It's fun as fuck. But we've gone through American Badass for the last nine episodes. We've gone volume <laughs> one through nine, and we've got a lot more to do. But today we're kind of taking a slight detour because. Um, when Dale and I were uh, were shooting with a mutual friend of ours uh, a month ago, he was telling me some stories about the nuclear security, and that's something I originally learned about you. The first ever interview I watched of, with you last year, it was from like five years ago, but you're talking about nuclear security, but we've never really got into that. But to me, that's just kind of the, the endless pit of stories that is Dale Comstock. And um, Dale, for all the new people, introduce yourself, and then let's jump into it. Yeah, all right. Hey, so welcome to the show, guys and girls. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm an equal opportunity podcaster. Fuck yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, so uh, a little bit about myself. If you can really learn more from if you watch the first uh, volume of the American Badass series. But uh, and I'm a former Delta Force operator, Green Beret, paratrooper, long-range scout. Um, I also was an OG paramilitary operative about nine and a half years and i've also worked as a mercenary a real mercenary i'm not talking about blackwater contractor but i've worked for foreign governments um to give them a special operations uh strike capability um i've owned uh, four companies uh, my first one was global security consultants incorporated um sold that in 2004 opened it in 2001 prior to 9-11 and uh, right place, right time. Doors opened up, made a lot of money. Uh, like I said, G4S bought it in 2004. 2005, I reincorporated Risk Control Institute and uh, sold that to a company called Intrepid circa 2011. Um, and then that's when I also got discovered in the, in the Hollywood thing, right? So I didn't want to go to Hollywood, but uh, ended up in, on Discovery Channel, then ended up on NBC, FX, and uh, started you know, acting, blah, blah, blah. And then I uh, ended up from there, um, kind of realized that Hollywood's probably not a good fit for me. Um, not that I can't do it, because I've done it, I've proved it, but it's just that uh, it's a different culture, man, that I was raised in, you know. And uh, I mean, I'm a, I was raised in a conservative military culture, you know, and being in a liberal culture, uh, it just was a, it was a bad fit. Yeah. And uh, and so anyways, um, you know, I, I, I made, the, yeah, I was actually invited to stay in los angeles um i could be on a ton of different shows tv shows and uh i was told that i could probably be the next danny trail um but uh i'm not as good looking as him so i'm not sure that would work dale, but, uh, <laughs> shut up you're, be- you're beautiful dale i don't want to hear it you're beautiful 
Well, anyways, I ended up in Hong Kong running a bodyguard detail for a multi-billionaire, a Chinese multi-billionaire investment banker. And then uh, my travels just took me finally to Indonesia and uh, where I reside for about this last six, half, six and a half years. Um, half of that time up in Jakarta and then the last uh, three years down in Bali. So I have a home here in Florida, which is where I'm calling it from now. And I have a home in Bali and a company, two companies in Bali now. Um, one of them's a security company and the other one is actually my wife's catfish farm. So, um, so here I am. And, uh, that's kind of a little preview of who I am. And, um, I do have a lot of experience in the nuclear industry as we, we started out talking about, you know, that's actually how I got my start in the security world after I left the army in, uh, 2001, before 2001, I was kind of at a crossroads, like, okay, um, what am I going to do when I go into the afterlife in the civilian world? And, um, you know, I thought, man, there's probably not a great need for a trigger puller, you know, Green Beret, Delta Force operator, you know, and uh, my skill sets, you know, I don't know if they were, I didn't think they were, um, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, transferable to the civilian world, but uh, I thought, well, security kind of lines with that so i don't want to work as a security guard or really work for anybody as a security manager because back then there was no money in it prior to uh, 9 11 and uh, so i said oh, i'll just start my own security company and that's kind of what happened and then you know talk about serendipity man two, uh 9 11 happened just as i finished my master's degree in business and organization security management and uh uh, the moon, the stars, everything just aligned perfectly yeah. all at the, at the right time. And man, I was off to the race. It actually started with, well, let me back up just a little bit. So as I was making my transition out of the military, I realized that I'd already been uh, promoting the company, and but I wasn't getting any bites. There was no interest because there was no reason, right? So at the time, the nuclear industry was... Um, it was in a sad shape as far as security was concerned. It was horrible, man. In fact, uh, there was no security. It was just put that way. And um, so I was campaigning in the business, but the reality is that security is considered, there's no ROI on it, no return on investment, right? There's no, security is just basically throwing money at something that's just, it, it doesn't pay off until there's an incident, right? Yeah. And then, uh, so nobody was willing to spend any extra money for anything related to consulting, blah, blah, blah. But, um, so sure enough, 9-11 happens, and then that's when the doors swung wide open. So prior to that, so I had to make this transition. I needed a job. So I ended up working in a glass factory down in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, a company called Guardian Glass, a Fortune 250 company. And uh, anyways, I worked for them for about three months. Um, to be honest with you, I hated it for a lot of reasons. But it, on, the, on the good side, on the good note, was I actually learned a lot um, about you know, civilian, you know, about corporations and all the OSHA crap and all the rules and, you know, um, the unions and, and, uh, anyways. So that was the upside to it. The downside was, um, you know, we were in an industrial park. Um, basically they recruited and hired, you know, basically local area people. Um, they made a base amount of money with really no pay, pay raise in sight. And, uh, you know, they were just basically worker bees. And, um, most of them were, you know, high school graduates or less, you know, um, and only people that had college educations were those in a supervisor management role. So, anyways, I took that job, and I can, and, you know, after I took it, I realized, man, this is going to suck because we worked twelve-hour shifts, you know, and it was a, a, a rotating shift, so two weeks you work days, and then two weeks you work nights, but it's always twelve hours, right? And uh, 
So you talk about, you know, screwing up your sleep pattern. And, uh, and then it was like herding cats every day, you know, in the, you know, people, what, you know, they tended not to really, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, I make this amount of money an hour and that's all I make. And so this is all I'm going to do for that. Right. And uh, nobody took the initiative that I was used to in the military. And, uh, you know, it was really kind of frustrating. I'd come into the office and there's garbage laying all over the, the floor. You know, we change shifts and, and not in the trash can. And I look at my guys go, Hey, you know, somebody got to pick that up. I'm not picking it up. Last shift left in here. Yeah. So we were supposed to do, leave it here for them the next shift. Right. Yeah. And so there was that mindset that was, you know, it wasn't the same as in the military. The military, somebody would have taken the initiative and picked it up. I wouldn't even have to tell them to do that and just get her done, right? Yeah. Um, so so the, co- the corporate world was definitely uh, an eye-opener for me. Um, but, you know, and I realized that, uh, you know, although I'm learning some things, I, it was not my cup of tea, man. And, uh, and so 9-11 happened, and literally the next day I got a phone call from Chicago uh, from from Exxon uh, Energy, and uh, <clears throat> as I understand it, Exxon is the largest nuclear power provider in the United States, third largest in the world. They actually had, a, I don't know about now, but at the time they had eleven uh, facilities, and I believe seventeen reactors. And uh, so they flew with me up there, my partner up there. Said, "Listen, here's the deal. Um, our our original consultant." He got on CNN and he threw the entire industry under the bus and talked about how unsafe they were and uh, the level of training or no training security officers had, you know. And uh, so right away, he just PNG'd himself, you know. It was a <laughs> terrible thing he did to himself, but he did it to himself. And uh, so <clears throat> we, uh, you know, they said, you know, are you guys, you guys want it? Say, Hell yeah, we want it, right? So, um, and so essentially, we had no other competitors in the industry um, at the time. There were none. And uh, so we really cleaned up. Um, our first client was Three Mile Island. And uh, yeah, that was the first client. And uh, man, we went there and, you know, and so up to this point, the standards for security were like almost non-existent, right? And that wasn't just Three Mile Island. It was all every nuclear power plant in the United States, right? Because I don't think anybody envision 9-11 you know that we could be attacked on our own soil you know by an enemy that's actually becoming very sophisticated right that was actually a very sophisticated attack insanely sophisticated Uh, yeah so um so now the realization came we got a freaking you know nuclear power plants are legitimate targets and uh and so you know and i won't point out any one particular nuclear power plant so as we traveled around um you know the the it was insane how unsecure the plants were. And I'll give you an example. Um, they, they have what's called a power block. It's a large building. And um, within it, you have your reactors. Um, sometimes everything is um, all together and you have your, your turbines, your generators and all that stuff, but uh, your control centers, um, control rooms. And, uh, but uh, basically the doors were propped open. Guys were going out and smoking a cigarette, dropping it and going inside, right? And, uh, and so, you know, they, they might have one chain link fence that went around the facility, and uh, <clears throat> but there was nothing to keep a determined adversary out. Um, and I would tell you that probably every nuclear power plant at that time, not now, but at that time, pre-9-11, uh, could have been breached. Now, okay, so everybody's going, oh, my God, you know, this, you know, you, mean you could have a nuclear meltdown. No, that's not what that means. What that means is, um, you know, 
a potential enemy had the opportunity to penetrate a nuclear power plant and and if they could hold it down which they could at the time um they had all the time in the world to do whatever they needed to do right sabotage yeah. uh, whether whether it was take over the control rooms um you know the mercy shut down you know val and all the you know you take the your centers. time to figure it out and yeah it they could have figured it out but i will tell you that the enemy if they're sophisticated enough to fly five, you know 757s then they're sophisticated enough to know how to set up they'll know what a nuclear power plant looks like they know where the target sets are and they'll already have a plan in place to come in um otherwise it's a suicide mission right um and so um so you know we you know I'm in this one facility we we here's the here's the funny part right so I go up to the reactor door and right on the other side of this you know a solid steel door you know is the one of the uh, reactors and uh, like maybe 15 20 feet away you know so and uh, so the the security manager was a great guy actually he's a great friend of mine now he's walking us down he goes okay this door goes into here you know this is like the last barrier to keep you know someone from touching a reactor right mm -hmm. and uh he goes how long would it take you to get through that door and i looked at it and it was a metal steel solid steel door and a metal frame and um i sized it up i go I, I could probably get through it um in about eight to ten seconds and he's like what he goes impossible i don't know it's eight to ten seconds he goes how do you know I go, well, because I blew the same kind of door up in Modelo Prison, right? And <laughs> P factor. <laughs> actually, the door I blew up in Modelo Prison was actually bigger and more sturdier, right? It was a double door. And so, so I made short work of that, right? Done and, it. Uh, and I've only been a few feet away from the blast when I did it. Yeah. And uh, so he's like, holy shit. He goes, the last guy that came in, which is a guy that PNG'd himself, who actually had a seal with him as a as a assistant con uh, consultant, um, they get this ridiculous amount, amount of time to breach, right? It's like two, two, three minutes, right, to get through there. And I'm like, geez, you know, they thought they're gonna have to do multiple attacks on it, you know. And and uh, I go, no. And I said, actually, let me look. Uh, I said, let me show you something, man. I said, forget the explosive. Let's forget about attacking this door. So I'm facing the door. I take two steps to the right. I go, now you see this corrugated tin wall? I'm gonna take this fire axe and just chop right through it in a couple of seconds. Yeah. And just and right, they're like, oh, they never thought about it. That oh shit, they got a fucking corrugated tin yeah. wall, yeah. right? Right with a steel frame door holding a steel, solid steel door, but the weakest part of that whole structure was the was the wall. It was thin. It was paper thin. Yeah. Right. So if you, I had a fire, I'd, I just chop right through it. You if, know. If and I then, wanted, if I wanted to break into the apartment below me, I couldn't get through the door. But what I would do is I'd take an axe and I'd go through the drywall ceiling. It's exactly. Just like there, right? like, just use your brain and step right outside, and it's yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's why I said, you know, they were woefully uh, unprepared because money, money wasn't really allocated for, you know, security assessments. Um, you know, and a lot of times their security expertise was in-house, which was very limited. And, um, you know, is their best guess. And unfortunately for, you know, especially in the corporate civilian corporate world and corporate and civilian security managers that don't have a military experience or background, um, they don't know what they don't know, right? So therein was uh, was the key. So when I said that, man, it's like, oh shit, you know, for alarms went off, you know, and and then it just got worse. Um, you know, it just got worse and worse the more we started inspecting. And I said, you know how easy this is? I said, you know, I can I can get a couple of you know third but ten third graders and march through here, you know, unopposed, man, if I wanted to. Um, 
but I'll give you some examples, man. So I'm, so what I'm not doing is I don't want to throw the nuclear industry under the bus now because mm-hmm. they've gone a, come a long way. They do have a standard that's set by the NRC. And uh, basically, it's it's called a design basis threat, the DBT, right? And it says, okay, you have to defend against X amount of bad guys with this kind of capability, um, these types of weapon systems, this amount of explosives, insider assistance, and, you know. So it's all laid out, man, right? Um, but to a, to a, you know, reasonably, because you could go, you could make it so that no nuclear power plant could ever secure itself by going, okay, you have to defend against an army of 500 people going to come through. You can't, right? And we're yeah. done. Yeah. Um, it has to be a reasonable amount based on uh, current TTPs, tactics, techniques, procedures of, you know, terrorists and things like that. And what would be a reasonable force to bring in? you know, in the United States without being compromised. Um, and actually, <clears throat> you would be probably better off with a smaller organization going in the nuclear power plant than trying to come in with a large organization because the larger it gets, the more command controls issues you have, uh, coordination, um, you know, synchronization, all those things that are needed to uh, deliberately, you know, and effectively assault an objective. So sometimes you have better C2 command and control with, uh, a smaller, uh, a smaller uh, element. So, um, but you know, like I said, they were woefully unprepared, and uh, I'd like to think that I helped in a lot of ways to make the nuclear industry much more robust. I came up with some great concepts and ideas um, that uh, are still in play today. How do I know that? Because I still have, uh, you know, I still you know associate with uh, some of the security uh, personnel in the in the industry. In fact, one of them right now is one of my clients. A coaching client of mine that I'm teaching, uh, I'm actually putting him through a security consulting course where he's learning everything about, uh, you know, explosives, um, you know, how they work, you know, RE factors, all the, you know, the 101 version of it. Um, you know, he's learning uh, basically light and heavy weapons, familiarization, application. Um, he, you know, he's doing executive protection, he's doing high speed technical driving. So I've got a lot of pro- subjects that, we're, that I'm teaching to this particular guy, but, uh, um, but anyways, um, so, you know, back then I, I can remember we would come in and uh, me, who was we, me and my, my, my business partner, um, what I don't have anything good to say about, but, uh, um, anyways, money changes people too, by the way, that's why I said that because, um, people lose their mind over money, unfortunately, and they do stupid things and they forget, uh, they forget their loyalties or friendships and, and, uh, it's, it's amazing what, how people, how money can corrupt people, but, mm-hmm. um, so anyways, um, so I remember going to nuclear power plants. And it was so easy, man, you know, to, I spent, my company, we spent about seven months, um, about six months at one facility. And uh, we probably, we probably, they probably ran up a bill of about $1.2, $1.4 million, right, for consulting services. Because anytime the NRC comes in and <clears throat> they do an audit, Right, which usually lasts about three days, and they actually do what we call penetration testing, and, and basically they challenge the strategy, security strategy, strategy, and uh, anywhere in this strategy, if they discover a basically a major or minor um, uh, flaw, right, in the system, um, <clears throat> depending on the severity, they will actually shut the nuclear power plant down until it's until it's rectified. And just depends on how problematic it is. I mean, it could be like, damn, it could be a while before we get this fixed. Mm-hmm. We might have to rearrange our entire security construct or architecture, right? We might have to adjust the whole damn thing now. And or we might have to add 
will remove, um, uh, you know, basically maybe obstacles or, or structures, you know, so in order to tighten up the security thing, right? Maybe there's a gap in the security that, you know, a barbed wire fence is not going um, <clears throat> to mitigate. For example, we, I went to one facility it was on a large river and they had a problem with the intake valve um basically where water was coming in and uh from the river and basically the the belief was by the nrc that uh, a swimmer could come in or a diver could come in and basically climb you know go through this little rat line and stuff and, and, and enter the uh, facility and so <clears throat> i was brought in um our company was brought in actually they brought in two different consultants companies um and uh and one of them was g4s at the time to assess this thing and um we all concluded there's no way a human being could get through this thing um you know just no way and uh one of the problem with the nrc is um sometimes they're too proud to admit when they're wrong and so they kept saying no 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 a guy can do it i'm like who are you guys to challenge me so what i did was i brought in some of my friends from seal team six i said all right we're, what we're going to do is we're going to actually dive this thing yeah. and I'm going to bring in some seals and let's see if they can penetrate it. Right. And they couldn't. And so the NRC wouldn't accept that answer. And I'm like, no, this is the, these are the best diver swimmers in the world. If anybody's going to get through there, it's them. Right. I can tell you, it's not going to be some Arab from you know Saudi Arabia, you know, Al Qaeda guy that's never seen water before. Yeah. That's going to do it. Right. Yeah. Even he's had some training. So, uh, so they, you know, instead of them conceding, going, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It's like you know, it was, it was, probably, it was kind of stupid, man. And uh, unfortunately, it cost the facility lots of money, lots of money. I mean, just my company alone, over one and a half, almost one and a half million dollars, and then consulting fees, not to include lost revenue, uh, shareholders' confidence, public confidence, all these things that come along with that, right? It can, have, it can be very damaging, and uh, and so. It, it, it was almost like we had a trial and the NRC brought their experts in, which by the way, none of them were military guys, a Navy or SF or anything like that. But there's somehow these, they somehow they thought that intellectually they know more than guys with experience, right? And, or more guys, more than guys with intellectual experience, right? And both, right? Mm-hmm. So in physical experience, um, and it was like, almost like, uh, you know, a dick measuring contest, you know, it's like, come on, you know? So we advocated for the client, and these other guys were advocating for the NRC, and I can tell you, it's a losing battle. Mm-hmm. It was then. There was no way they were going to concede, and we realized right away, you guys are going to get fined a lot of money, even though you're right, wrong, because they're too proud to say you they were wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of politics, you know, intertwined in all this. And then, uh, so the best thing you can do is do the, you know, is try to help the client win the battle based on. You know, we came in, we did math with these guys. We did charge calculations. Um, and I always liked when I got to these, these plants, they had in one particular engineering company that would do blast analysis, right? If, you know, a, you know, a, a semi-tractor trailer with, you know, 50,000 pounds of explosives and they parked the truck right here, what would it do, right? And they, did, and they did all the computer stuff, you know, forensics. It would do this blast wave, this and that and that. And then I would come and go, yeah, well, that's nice, but no, that won't happen like that because that's not how explosives work, right? Yeah. How do you know? Because I actually worked with explosives for 35 years. That blew, so. the, door off. <laughs> that blew the fucking door off of Modelo Prison, God damn it! <laughs> yeah, no, so, so there's yeah, always, yeah. you know, everybody's, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just they don't want to share the rice bowl, you know, it's, you know, it's just a lot of politics, but I've gone into facilities where um, that's happened. Um, I've gone into... You know, and the other problem is 
and I was, again, I have another guy I was coaching, I believe it was yesterday, and I was telling him about the world of security. He goes, the problem is most security managers don't know what they don't know. And so if you're ever thinking about becoming a security consultant, actually, if you think about becoming any kind of a consultant or in business, the key to success is anticipating the next paradigm, being able to go, I see what's going to happen. The only way you can really see what's going to happen um, confidently is if you have experience, mm-hmm. right? So my, so my, um, when I go in, for me, the, the winning argument every time is, I've been doing this most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I know exactly how the bad guys think, and I know exactly what they're capable of or not capable of. And so, and I can also go and go, this is going to be a problem in the future. How do you know? Because this is how I would do it. Well, how do you know you would do it that way? Because if I was watching this facility and analyzing it, right, it wouldn't take much for me to go, okay, Carver Matrix or whatever I'm going to use and go, okay, this is my attack strategy. And I will win. Mm-hmm. So, I'll give you an example of that real quick. Um, two years ago, three years ago, um, that was about three years ago. So, no, I was actually longer than that. It was about four years ago. I was uh, in Jakarta and I was working canines and I had this idea. I go, you know, looking at the security guards at every facility, there's a security guard at every establishment in Indonesia. Um, literally everyone, hotels, malls, they're all right there. You know, they're checking you when you go through. And, uh, they look great, you know, they don't have any weapons, they're all unarmed. And uh, it really, somebody once told me, he goes, yeah, there's security, but it's really just so everybody has a job, right? <laughs> like, wow. And uh, and I saw how bad the security was. It really was zero security. Um, in fact, you know, if you drove a car, and you can drive a car at any checkpoint in Indonesia. They'll open the door to look and say, hey, how's it going? And close the door, lift the trunk and slam the trunk. They have no idea what they're looking for for right if you ask them what are you looking for well i'm looking explosives describe me describe me what explosives look like and not you know the wild e coyote i was about to say know, the dynamite sticks right with the clock <laughs> on it yeah i said you know and uh and they don't know and they um, and force of course they don't know because the level of training requires it's just not uh it's not you know affordable i guess and there is a requirement over there that else what they call a satpam is meets a certain minimum level of training and uh so, um, and I was, I was telling everybody, I go, you know what's going to happen? I said, the, the days of car bombs are still here. Um, I said, but that's kind of becoming cliche. What's becoming in vogue now is active shooters, active shooters with suicide vests and just suicide bombers on motorcycles. I said, that's what's going to happen next. And what do you mean? I go, yeah. I said, I can see a guy running a checkpoint with a motorcycle and a backpack full of explosives. And he said, there ain't no way you can stop him. You don't have guns. You can't run faster than him. He's going to ride that bike right into the venue and, and detonate himself, right? And so I started training dogs to take out motorcycle riders. If a guy ran a checkpoint and there was a security officer there with a dog, usually Malinois because they're pretty fast, um, boom, he'd send the dog. He'd take the guy off the motorcycle. If he's going to blow up, at least let him blow up right there and outside yeah. the venue. Well, it was probably a year later or less um, at a Catholic church uh, down in, uh, I think it was Surabaya, um, a guy came back. He was he was a, he was a radicalized is um, um, Indonesian. Went to ISIS and came back from Syria, and then basically basically radicalized his whole family: his wife, his two daughters, and his two teenage sons. Right, and uh, he basically built. Uh, he built TATP pipe bombs. I have actually pictures of them, and they were really professionally done. I mean, I got to give them kudos. Those were nice, right? <laughs> <laughs> Those were really attractive pipe bombs. That's that's expensive what explosive guys talk about. But anyways, yeah. um, so, so anyways, um, he filled up some backpacks. He took his he told his two boys to take the backpack, 
get on a motorcycle and run through the gate of the church and drive right up to the front end and blow yourself up, right? Uh, the Catholic Church in Indonesia are, you know, mostly Chinese Catholics, right? Yeah. And uh, and then he had the, the mom um, basically strapped a body bomb on with the two little girls in arm, and she went to another church and blew herself up while it during mass, right? So, um, and then the father was still at the house when the house got raided. He was trying to, you know, handle some TATP, which is very, um, um, you know, it's very sensitive, man, very volatile. I mean, you mishandle it, it'll go off of your hand. It's very unstable. And uh, that's actually what happened. When they raided him, that thing went off and blew him to pieces, right? But uh, the boys blew themselves up in the gate. I've got video of that. You know, it's pretty bad bombing. Um, and I don't have pictures of the video of the mom blowing herself up, but that happened. So, so that's an example of you know anticipating the next paradigm. I saw that coming in with the motorcycles, and bam, it happened. Right? At least my dogs were being trained for it, but it didn't. That was not my facility uh, securing. So, um, so backing up, you know, back to the security world, it's the same thing. Um, you know, even though there's a design basis threat, uh, and usually military guys are weighing in on that. You know, they're telling you, well, this is you know threat capabilities, blah blah blah. Uh, it becomes a you know it becomes a game where an exercise where the NRC and others go, oh, can we really tell the client to protect against this? Because that would cost them like bazillions of dollars to reinforce, you know. And, um, and I'll give you an example. Like, for example, if you took what's called a BRE, a ballistic rated enclosure, it's basically a guard shack that's bulletproof or bullet resistant. Um, well, it's only going to be resistant up to a certain point. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you got to ask yourself, well, well, what could, you know, can I get something big enough to bore a hole through that and kill the guy inside? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, I used to buy armor-piercing incendiary ammunition, 50 caliber, off the internet, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no shit, right? I actually bought it off the internet, and uh, and we did testing with it, you know, and it's like, okay, this is just going to go through your PREs like butter, you know? Yeah. So what So what do you do? So that's where we come in, and we figure out means of mitigation, how to fix all that kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> And it's with any corporation. It's not just nuclear. It's, it's hotels I work for um, or work under that, um, you know, they don't want to spend the money on security. Why? Because it's, there's no ROI on it. Uh, security managers are held accountable for the, the budget, you know. And actually, believe it or not, um, at the end of the year, uh, I'm going to be careful how I say this because, uh, you know, there are hotels out there that are notorious for this. And... They, you know, the security manager or the, the general managers at the end of the year get a Christmas bonus. It's pretty damn big based on how much money they can save throughout the year. So they're always looking how to shave, how to shave corners on everything. And guess what gets the axe first? Security, right? There, it's it's an illusionary world. Like, okay, we have looks looks like good security, right? And the only people they're fooling is Joe Public that doesn't know better, right? Um, he looks around, and goes, "Yeah, hey, looks like you got a lot of security here. I feel pretty safe." But for the for the for the informed, for the consultant, for the for the terrorists that know their business, they're going, this is easy, right? I mean, they, they can see through it. So they're not going to be dissuaded by that. They're not. The only people they're going to, you know, this is working for are, you know, um, naive the, civilians. The people who know? aren't going to attack. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I can, and I'll, I'll make that, I'll make that same statement for everything, man. Airports, security. Mm-hmm. Globally, everything, right? It's almost always just um, um, image, and there's no substance to it, right? It's the perception. We got tight security, but any guy that's worth his salt as a security consultant knows how to bypass all that, right? And by the way, as a security consultant, that doesn't mean I'm smarter than my adversary. 
they could be just as smart, right? So it becomes a chess game, figuring out what they well, what may they do and how can I prevent that and mm-hmm. make them do something else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, in the security world, um, we're always one step behind the terrorists. They do something, go, ah, shit, didn't see that coming. Let me fix this, right? So it never happens again. And he's up, the terrorists already think of another way to do it, right? So we're always like one step behind. The idea is to get one step in front of them, mm-hmm. right? And go, ah, make them go a different direction, yeah. right? That's what you want to do. Um, so the nuclear industry, I love, I like doing security because it's very challenging. It's not something that anybody, I think, can do. And the reason why, when you go into a nuclear power plant, um, the way I have my approach is, First of all, I want to do an assessment. I want to look at what's this facility look like. I wa- I'll walk it down outside, inside the uh, owner control area. I look at everything and go, okay, this this is what it looks like. This is where I am. Uh, second step is I look at the blueprints, right? There's a lot to be learned from blueprints, right? And uh, understand the blueprints and also understand, okay, based on these blueprints, there might be an issue over here with this. Um, and then you have to analyze uh, basically their uh, response strategy. That is, how do their security officers deploy um, in in an emergency, right? In a breach or whatever, right? And so think about this for a minute. <clears throat> Nuclear security guards cost money, okay? And so normally you have at least three different shifts that you're paying for, right? If they're working eight-hour shifts or 12-hour shifts, um, but it's usually at least three different shifts, you know, and I would say that probably an average nuclear power plant has 20, 25 security guards on duty at any one time covering down on some of these big ass facilities, right? And so you have to strategically place them, um, their, their positions so that you have overlapping security, right? And they can respond to any kind of a breach or, or emergency without leaving a gaping hole behind them. And therein lies the problem because Every security guard you add to a uh, to a detail, right, is money costs mm-hmm. big money, right? And so back then they were they were making about fifty thousand a year, if I remember right. But it probably cost three times as much just to have that guy on duty. After you, you know all the other expenses that go along with it, you know the uniforms and training and the investment, you know. So one security guard is pretty damn expensive, and if you have a working so. They want to do the mostest with the leastest, uh, you know. Just get you know bare minimum of security that can cover the cover the area. But the problem is, you lose one guy. Uh oh, you've got a huge degradation of security. Sacrificed. Yeah, you lose two guys. It's game on, man. And so, but that's how they operate because it comes down to the bottom line. We, they got to save money, uh, you know, and and not throw so much money in security that you know they're still making profit. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I understand like a nuclear power plant, they got a lot of shit to pay for, repair, you know, there's, man, there's a lot of expensive stuff in a nuclear power plant to make it, you know, make it work. Mm-hmm. So it's always a, it's always a budgetary issue as well. And uh, my job as a consultant was to come in and try to give them the best security at the best price, right? That was the goal, you know, and try to figure out where can we do something and, uh, you know, with a multi-use, uh, you know, capability, right? So, um and so that was the challenge is being able to do all that. And then you had to vet it and verify it, right? So if we we created a security system where we altered it, we had to proof it, we had to test it to include things like run times, like literally running, right? From from this gate to this point takes, you know, five seconds with a backpack on, you know? And from here to here, it takes like 12 seconds with a backpack on, you know? And so we had run times, mm-hmm. you know, and basically it's all laid out on like a blueprint. <clears throat> Actually, what we had was like elevate, we had... Um, we had levels of the buildings 
right, with blueprints on the floor uh, covered with plexiglass, right? And you, could, you had run times and markers, so you could act, it was almost like a chess game. Okay. So you could actually, on, on, a, um, on a typical tabletop drills, you could actually start testing times yeah. and run times. You go, I'm not sure about this run time. Send the fastest dude out with a backpack and, and run it for time. Let's see what it comes up to, you know? You, you, um, know, you know what you could do? Is, man, you, <clears throat> actually, I don't know. Maybe this is a good idea. Maybe we should spice it out. Is, man, if you made that into, like, if you outsource that to, like, a simple game, just like a mobile game on your phone, you could yeah. you could outsource that to the public. Someone, some some friends are going to try to get the high score. Well, now you have just outsourced that to 10,000 people. They've just given you 10,000 man hours for free, <laughs> and, you've, and you've figured out, right? It's kind of like what the conspiracy about, like, uh, the 10-year challenge on Facebook when people are like, right. that was then, this is now. Everyone's right. like, yeah, what it is is it's free AI farming. The AI is learning how people age for free. So right, you have right. everyone on Facebook going, 10-year challenge, that was then, this is now. The AI is getting billions of dollars of <laughs> R&D for free. Man, maybe if you turn that into a simple game, like a maze game on an iPad, I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe you just get in jail. I don't know. But sorry, yeah, go yeah. on. Yeah, well, the, the, the blueprints are kind of confidential. Oh, yeah. You know, that, oh, you know, right? <laughs> okay, well, fuck me. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, um, the whole, yeah. But, but actually what's interesting is um, – so what I used to do is I would download satellite imagery, mm-hmm. right? Google Earth and and blow it up, you know, in color and black and white of mm-hmm. the entire facility, the AO. So I had, a, I had a, basically a satellite map imagery of the target, the facility, right? Which I used to help me plan defense strategies, you know, based on potential um, avenues of approach by the adversary. Um so that's what makes it interesting is it's a man, mind game. You got to understand. Oh, the other part you have to understand thoroughly is NRC DBZ, design based threat, all the regulations. It's actually, it's, uh, it's legal, right? This is, you know, regulatory stuff that the, the plants must meet these standards, right? Um, for everything, uh, bad guy with this type of weapon system. Um, if this goes down, you know, for example, you have in a new, most nuclear power plants have, um, uh, two control centers, a primary and alternate. They have uh, backup shutdown systems. Um, so they have, you know, these redundancies built in. So you know, what if this thing, they, they compromise this thing and this thing, you know, and you're running on this thing and this side of the planet is being breached with uh, a diversion over here, right? It's like, damn, a lot of shit going on, right? And so you have to be prepared for all that. And you don't know what the attack strategy is until the NRC comes in. And they do the same thing. They do their assessment and they look at the facility and go, okay, this is the way I would do it. And then they come up with their attack plan. And then you do a tabletop drills like a chess game to see if it will work. And then a lot of times we'll go outside and actually do it for real, right, with run times and, you know, maneuvering people to see if, again, it's valid, right, uh, the results from the tabletop drill. So it's actually kind of cool. Um, it's a mind game. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't understand the regulations, um, law and you don't understand a design-based threat um, and you really don't understand um, layered security okay because that's kind of one of the things i brought in was a layered type security it's almost a three-dimensional security from outside to inside from top to down and uh, everything had to be synergistic overlapping um, you know and uh, supporting others each other right and every other area so um but, you know, I, I can remember one time I was at a new plant. They brought us in for one issue, and I addressed it. And I forget, while I was addressing that, I'm looking at this. It was actually a spent fuel pool is what it was. Mm-hmm. So they have these gigantic 
you know, massive swimming pools, like 45 yeah. feet high, right? Yeah. And uh, what they do is they take the spent fuel rods and they yeah, insert them in there, right? Because they're still hot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically they keep them in the pool until, they, you know, it takes a while for them to cool off and all that kind of stuff. But they're still radioactive. And uh, and so, <clears throat> and then the, what will happen is DOE will come in at some point unannounced, you know, and then they'll pick it all up and take it off, right? And dump it. So, I'm sitting there, I'm going, you know, to these guys, I go, what is this? And uh, it's been fuel raw poo. I go, okay, are these things, you know, are they inert? No, he goes, they're still radioactive, you know? And, uh, but not to the point where they're doing them any good, you know, creating uh, steam and energy, but they're still radioactive, right? They're still dangerous. And I go, okay, well, so I'm standing and I'm looking and, and there's a big gigantic warehouse door. It's kind of in a warehouse, right? And the doors are open and I can see right out to a tin, a, to a chain link fence, you know, to the river. And that was it. And, uh, and, this, and, and, and it was outside of their, um, their controlled area, right? So the secure area is kind of on the outside. In fact, a lot of times these um, spent fuel rods are in containers and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, types of... Um, uh, not a coffin, but uh, basically, it's kind of like these coffins, you know. Yeah, and, the metal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they're basically securing those things outside, you know, in a wherever in a in a parking platform area. Anyways, so I go. So let me get this straight. I said we got a swimming pool with I don't know how many gallons of water. I mean, it's enough in here for Shamu the whale to swim around and dive and stuff, right? It's this big, and uh, it's going down at least forty feet, and they got spent fuel rods in here. I go. And you don't think this is something you need to secure? He goes, well, why? He goes, what are you going to do with it? He goes, you can't really get the rods out. He goes, what are you going to do with it? I go, well, I'll tell you what I'll freaking do with it. I said, if I can just walk in here, which apparently I can, I said, I'll just lower satchel charge about down to 35 feet, okay, and uh, with, you know, whatever X amount of explosives. And, uh, I mean, I know the number, but, um, yeah. you know, for security, I won't say it, but I'll, I'll, lower, the, I'll lower the explosives. And... Uh, already did the calculations yeah. i already know that you know when you lower explosives in the water the pressure from the water actually amplifies mm-hmm. the effect of the explosive makes it more powerful mm-hmm. right and uh and i go so this will be easy i said i'll basically lower it right along the length of the pool wall okay and then uh and then i'll you know i'll put a timer on it you know time fuse or i can command detonate it doesn't matter how i do it um and then basically i'll blow the side of this pool out all this water and these radioactive rods are going to splash out and river. roll right into the river. Game <laughs> right? over. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, you know what? And I'm, I'll probably kill a lot of fish, but literally what's going to happen down the river, I'm going to scare the shit out of a lot of people. Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah, uh, destroy. Yeah. I mean, that's going to fuck up local, the local economy. And, and, and that was my point. I said, as a terrorist, I don't have to kill you. I yeah. just have to scare you. Right. And, uh, and that's the whole point of this thing, because, you know, people are very gullible, naive. And, and guess what? COVID proved that. Mm-hmm. COVID has proven that. How basic, gullible, and naive and afraid people are, you know, from a virus with a 99.76% survivability rate. Um, I mean, you have a better chance now of dying from the cold. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, there's, I, I mean, I, I see girls on the beach sunbathing in bikinis with a damn mask on their face. Uh, it's, but, it's, so it, they, they've lost all rational thinking. They, they, they stopped they, thinking they about it. They, just do. they didn't have it no. in the first place. Let's be clear. No, they just do it. Right. And it's, it's, it's amazing how many people is a vast majority of the American population is so easily intimidated because they don't have any, they don't have any experience in this other world. 
that we call, you know, security and combat and, you know, and the world of death and killing, man, you know, they live this sheltered life. And so they always think that, you know, the government's going to take care of them, is always looking out for them. Not so. And so, um, you know, again, as a terrorist with that knowledge, especially now, it's like, man, I don't have to kill nobody. I can scare people into mm-hmm. compliance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, let their imagination, mm-hmm. I'll use their imagination against them. And so, there is an example, right? And so as soon as I did that, man, all alarms went off in the nuclear industry, literally on the spot, they put out a, a public a policy said, fix it now. Every one of them has to be secured. Whatever it takes, get her done, right? And so on one hand, I'm like feeling pretty good that hey, I do something good for you guys. On the other hand, I'm, they're all looking at me like, you piece of shit. Yeah. Now we got to spend all more money. <laughs> now we got to spend more money, right? But uh, hey, I'm doing my job, you know, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm pointing out things that I see are problematic. And uh, that's what I do. And that's what I get paid for. So there's a lot of stuff that I did. But, um, you know, the, but the industry was, you know, started, you know, listening. They started bringing in their own. They started hiring in-house consultants, you know, with, uh, you know, a security special forces background. Um, got smart, man. You need that, right? Because anytime you alter your security plan, any way you move a security guard from here to there, you got to relook the whole security system. Mm-hmm. I just now affect everything, right? Yeah. And uh, because it's so tight, it was so tight. And um, but here's the bad news, right? Um, for everybody that's listening out there, all security can be breached. It doesn't matter what it is. If I'm protecting us, a principal, okay. If I want them bad enough, I'll get them. Somebody mm-hmm. will get them, mm-hmm. right? All we can do is provide, bring, be a deterrent, and dissuade the threat. But you got it's got to be a it's got to be a real. Um, you know, it's got to be a real defense, right? That the bad guys will recognize is that, right? Because if he goes, that's bullshit, right? Like the security guards that are unarmed at the gate. Why are you checking my car? What are you going to do if you find something? Yeah, I'm just going to shoot you in the face and drive in anyways, right? Yeah. Or, I'm the or bad guy right there. Yeah, right. You exactly, clearly don't right? give so, a fuck. Yeah, no, exactly, right? And so, um, you know, that's sadly again, it comes back to it's always. Um, um, economic decision, a business decision about money. And I will tell you this sadly, and I'm not, and I'm not talking about the nuclear industry right now. Um, cause they are doing what they need to do. Um, but they're, they're, they, are, they have limitations, man. Um, I'm confident. I'm confident I could breach a nuclear power plant and get in. I've done it as part of their perimeter testing. Um, I've gone around and challenged their systems. That's what I'm supposed to do to see if I can get in. I've breached several nuclear power plants with some of the most simplest tools you can imagine. I mean, literally, like it was insane. Um, I've actually penetrated active um, um, alarm systems and e-fields, electronic fields that should have alarmed as I as I was penetrating them but because of my strategy i was able to get through them right so um, i'm pretty good at it and uh and by the way i learned how to do it guess how i learned how to do it over the internet um literally um literally so um i had a story uh, so i'm gonna kind of go off a little segue again but um my partner calls me one day. He's up in, in a nuclear power plant talking to the security manager. And the security manager was like, hey, can you do a uh, perimeter do perimeter testing? You got to do perimeter testing? Well, we had never done that before, right? Not for a nuclear. And, uh, but we always knew what the answer. The answer was, of course we can, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, if we, you know, even though we didn't do it, we'll figure it out. Yeah. So he calls me and goes, hey, dude, we, you know, um, they want to know perimeter security. How long is it going to take? How much? Right? He had no idea. And so... Right away, I'm sitting there calculating in my mind what it would take and, and my approach. Literally, I, my, I just came up with this idea in my head. 
how would I do this? I go, I finally figured it out right away. I go, it's three days. And it costs this much money, right? And uh, even though I've never done one like this. So he turns around, looks at it, and goes, it takes three days. And she's like, what? She goes, your other guys, your competitors, they can do it in one hour. These are the same guys that I put out of business initially that gave the bad calculations for the door, right? Mm-hmm. Two minutes for you know, for an eight-second door. And uh, and he's like, no. He goes, "There's no, it's impossible. He goes, it's impossible. I mean, I know what was going on. It's like, okay, I, you know, I'll walk around it. So I checked it out. It'll take you one hour, you know, pay me money, right? We checked the block. But we're really, now we've got a company that's coming in going, oh, we're going to do this like it's supposed to. And if you do it like it's supposed to, it's going to take three days. Mm-hmm. Like, damn. And so I did. And uh, I have I have a very unique strategy. I think it's unique um, how to do it. Uh, I was very thorough. And in, in those processes, I was able to identify uh, vulnerabilities in the perimeter and then actually attempt a penetration. And uh, I can tell you that I've been quite successful. Once, I, once I've studied the, the facility, you know, and all the weaknesses, I look at things like lighting, I look at contrast, um, I look at camera, uh, CCTV camera angles, um, I even consider, you know, the, the uh, you know, the cast, what you call cast operators, right, uh, which is your central, uh, central arm station, it has all the monitors and stuff on it, look, that guy can't watch every camera either, right, mm-hmm. and there's a way to maybe distract him and there, take his eyes off of you while he's looking at something else, but what in the hell is going on over there, right? Um, but anyways, so I got really good at that, and uh, I, I was penetrating nuclear power plants. But even then, I remember you know having security managers look at me and go, "That's impossible. You how did you do that?" I go, "Look at turn on your CCTV cameras and see if you can see what I did." And and basically, I was literally using four by fours, right? And I would make like little catwalks out of them. And uh, my partner and I would run up to the fence. He would he would throw on a fence. I would run up it like a cat mm-hmm. and jump over the radar systems, right? <laughs> With Jeez. a backpack on an explosive and do a basically a, a parachute landing fall rollover and just keep on going until totally undetected, right? And uh, I said, that's how easy it is, right? And so sometimes they put a lot of faith in all their electronics, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's like any lock in the world. Any, every lock can be defeated. Every nuclear power uh, security can be defeated. Every nuclear, any security system can be defeated, right? With a guy that's got determination, he's got skills, right? And he's determined to get through there and uh, and 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 meet the objective, whether it takes his life, it doesn't matter, right? So, um, but anyways, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, field of work. I did really well at it. Um, 2004, my company was sold to uh, Wackenhut G4S mm-hmm. um, because basically we were getting in their way, right? Taking their business. So um, so they bought the company up, which I went on and uh, reincorporated in the Risk Control Institute. And then uh, I started garnering my own uh, uh, service uh, contracts with the power plants for security, right? And then in 2011, I sold the company with those service contracts to another company, right? Because it was like, they're selling gold now. I'm selling you yeah. freaking gold, you know? Yeah. So. For everybody listening, uh, actually, I wonder if Dale had a hand in this. Wackenhut did security out at the Nevada test site, or the Groom Lake, what we would call Area 51. Wackenhut did security there for decades, and I think they eventually lost it because they they did like a red cell team drill with like a nuclear weapon without informing them that they were doing a drill. And it like went all the way up to the White House. I think they lost their contract there. But I think for like yeah. forty or fifty years they did security out at Area Fifty One. Um, yeah, one of the things you got to think about in security, man, security as a consultant, for example, you don't want to you don't want to just 
and we're gonna we're gonna test their perimeter. We're not gonna tell them because first of all, that could cost your life. Well, that's <laughs> what it almost kidding. did. That's what it almost did. Yeah. <laughs> but, but two, you don't want to embarrass the client either, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is you want to work with the client, yeah, and help them, not embarrass them, right? Yeah. And so, um, I would never do an unannounced, you know, security penetration. Um, period. Just not gonna do it. Um, now, what I will do is tell the security manager, listen, I'm gonna randomly yeah. do doing a you know surveillance on your on your facility. I'm gonna do some you know some random penetration tests, some low key stuff, just to test the, the system, yeah. right? Um, to try to make it better. But it's it's a game of politics too, unfortunately. And business is business, right? And uh, unfortunately, you know, the bottom line, the, the almighty dollar, and you know, that's what everybody you know concerns themselves with the most right to the point where some companies um and i won't name again like hotels and stuff like that but uh would rather just rely on insurance and cover the cost if you get sued when it's all over than really put the money up front to save people and protect people i see i know that's going on right now for a fact um for a fact and uh and i know that that's where their, their mindset is like, man, we're going to put all this money into security that for something that may never happen, probably never happen. And, you know, let's, let's do the bare minimum. Let's, you know, put up a facade and, oh, well, shit, something happened. Ah, well, that's why we got an insurance policy. Sadly, um, that's going on all the time, everywhere. Um, you know, again, you know, you can, you can look. Now, bad guy can look at security. I can look at security and go, there is no security. Even though these guys are acting like security, there is no security. Mm-hmm. This whole thing is easily penetratable. Mm-hmm. And um, and basically, with my knowledge, I can tell you, I believe, you know, th- these companies that do this are being negligent. Um, you know, they're, 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 tr- they're not even trying to be risk averse. They're just being like freaking, just being negligent, right? They would just rather... Watch your family get blown to smithereens and then pay the money. Let the insurance company pay. Then they're doing the right thing. Sadly, that's the reality. And I tell you, um, it's even worse in foreign countries um, and uh, and with foreign, you know, with foreign security managers and general managers. It's it's just a business, man. And we live in a, in a different world, man. We live in a feral world now. You know, it's a dangerous world, very dangerous world. And it's getting more and more dangerous. It's getting unhinged, man. And it's going to get even worse. And, uh, you know, you need security more now than ever. And I think it's the moral thing to do is to make sure that you're protecting your clients, you know, your guests, um, the general public, you know, from any harm that could come to them because you have established business that somebody wants to destroy, you know, like hotels, mm-hmm. you know, Marriott hotel, man. Um, they've been bombed several times, um, especially in Indonesia. And, uh, you know, and, and they had certain mandates in place. And I know that they revoked a lot of them because with times like, Oh, that was a long time ago. You don't have to worry about that no more. But, um, you know, you always have to worry about it because I can tell you the terrorists are smarter than the general managers and security managers, hands down. Right? I don't care what kind of facility it is, what kind of hotel it is, um, for the most part, unless they've got a prior military guy in that, in that seat, he's actually got real experience and real knowledge on, you know, again, enemy TTPs. Not only enemy TTPs, but, uh, you know, um, our own, you know, foreign, our own forces TTPs. How do we do uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures? Um, I was at a facility one time 
and I was briefing the general manager and uh, we were talking about shoulder fired weapons. I said, well, there's a threat with shoulder fired weapons. You know, you have your things out here, your BREs, and I said, you know, an RPG will just punch right through, you know, 13 inches of homogenized steel. And, uh, and so, you know, and I remember he's like, ah, you know, come on, where are you getting an RPG from? This is America. Oh, really? Yeah, well, tell that to tell that guy that went down to Radio Shack, got all the components and made two of them. Yeah. Uh, tell that tell that to one of my business associates who's got a license to, for uh, explosives in fifty states, to include a license to build shore fire weapons. Who actually built an RPG replica out of stainless steel that actually fires Jesus projectiles using um, uh, the model rocket motors. Right, I, it's it's pretty freaking scary. And I actually, and I said, and I actually told him one day, I called him, man, it'd be cool if we had like an RPG simulator for our training. A week later, he goes, hey, what, will this work? I went, what? And I swear to God, it was amazing, right? So think about that. If you can, if a guy has any knowledge on, you know, working with, uh, you know, AutoCAD and stuff like that, and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, all, you know, making stuff, then if he can do it, anybody can do it, right? Mm-hmm. That's got a little bit of knowledge on it, right? So it's not hard to do. Um, Making explosives, you know, all right, what are they all explosives? I'll tell you where they get it, in the kitchen. Because you can make what they call HME, homemade explosives, right over with all the kitchen, in the kitchen with, you know, regular household uh, chemicals. Um, there's TATP out there, tri- um, triacetone triphosphate, right? It's, uh, it's a homemade explosive. Um, it's actually a very common explosive. It's the one, you know, that terrorists like to use. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it is it is unstable, but from what I understand now, they've actually learned how to stabilize it a little bit. So then there's um, ETN, which is made out of uh, erythrosol, which is the artificial sweetener, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's another HME, right? That's actually starting to become in vogue. Um, <laughs> listen, man, there's about 18,000 types of uh, explosives out there or variations of it. And, uh, you know, the, the the ability to make them is there. You're not going to be able to stop that. And if I can if I can make things that go bang, I can make things that go bang that shoot things that go bang, right? So I mean, really, it's just chemistry. There, and uh, yeah, there are people. Uh, there are uh, channels on YouTube of these guys that have made uh, rockets that I think they can reach like two thousand feet altitude and they can get yeah. close to the speed of sound. Fired by sugar, they burn sugar. Like if you 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 can if you can find a fuel source you can find something calorically dense and that's your fuel yep. source. There you go. So again, this is where you know having some knowledge and then uh, being able to anticipate the paradigm is going to be where you make your money, right? Um, the the next hard part is convincing them that you know what you're saying is true and accurate and making them realize and make them understand the threat and what they need to do. A lot of them things they don't know what they don't know. And sometimes what you tell them just seems so, so far fetched in their mind because of limited experience that they won't even adopt it, right? Yeah. And uh, so, as a consultant, I have to find myself besides eating pancakes while I'm talking to you is <laughs> <laughs> is um, you know becoming a, a salesperson, right? I gotta I gotta show them, convince them why this is a problem. If I have to, I'll demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the key, when it keys to nuclear security again i'm not saying anything that's not not known is nuclear security really depends on time on seconds they only have a a certain amount of time to respond to an alarm to a threat to multiple alarms multiple attacks right 
all kinds of issues, but it always comes down to literally seconds, mm-hmm. um, literally seconds. And and so one of the ways I made money in the nuclear industry, made good money, was I would sell the nuclear industry time. So how do you how do you, how do I buy time from? You? How do you how do you give me more time? I said I'm going to sell it to you. I'm going to make it for you, right? I'm going to create delays mm-hmm. so you have more time to respond. And uh, one of the things I was doing was um, <clears throat> I would look at their existing perimeter structures, defenses, or whatever they had, and go, okay, this only has a delay of about you know 15, 20 seconds. Now I would look, look at their response strategy. I said, okay, is that you know you have a delay here, 20 seconds, delay here, 10 seconds, right? Do all the math, okay? Cumulative, you've got about you know 45 or 50 seconds before you know the boogeyman is at the front door coming through it, right? And your response strategy requires this many seconds to get everybody in the right places if the attack is here. If it's over here, then you got to shuffle and do it here, right? And then, oh, there's other variables like communications. You know, that's if everybody gets the word, gets the signal. There's a breakdown in communications. You know, now there's another delay, right? And confusion. So, so I said, so you need more times to, so that you can respond, right? Even if there's a, 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 you know, a snafu somewhere along the way, you still got time to recover. Um, so I would take like the, uh, for example, I would take like a fence, chaining fence. Go, okay, this is your chaining fence. All right, it's going to give you ten seconds. All right, with bolt cutters or whatever. I'm going to go out and I'm going to give you another. I'm going to give you another forty-five seconds. So now you got fifty-five seconds just on that fence. Okay. Then what I would do is I would re, I would go to, to California uh, to a range out there with one of my friends um, who's got a license for explosives. We'd order the explosives all the building material. And what we would do is we build the fence and then we built, what we did is we added on to the fence, right? So we made the fence more robust so that it could stand a, withstand a menu of um, different types of breaching charges, explosives, right? There was bulk explosives, you know, flying pickets, um, every, and everything that was in the manual that I knew was possible for breaching. Well, what I had to do is think about, okay, can it withstand this much explosives of this type of charge that's still within the DBT? And so I would build these fortified fences. Um, and um, then they were and they were pretty damn scary, man. And I built a higher, I double tape, uh, put double uh, tape, razor tape on it, um, double helix razor tape on it, uh, you know, jersey barriers, 5,000 pound jersey barriers. Um, I, I, I created, and then within the design itself, um, there were there were components that were designed to completely defeat explosives also, right? And then the whole design was also created so that it would collapse in on itself. So if you did breach any kind of a hole, it would just close up it just closes up on itself again like a Venus flytrap, yeah. right? You still yeah, still screwed, right? Yeah. So I had some very unique projects that I did and uh, and I did really well at that because we put several of our uh, these systems we created and they were never the same. It's just we had to customize it for every facility, but um, you know these were large dollar projects. And then uh, on installation, you know I would have to come up and basically supervise installation, basically uh, you know train the uh, you know the pipe fitters and, and uh, guys that were actually building this project. You know, okay, PPE. You know, you got to wear leather gloves, coveralls, leather coveralls. Working with razor tape, you know, and this is how it's got to be looked. Mm-hmm. So I had to also come back in and um, verify that the job was done right. So, <clears throat> some very unique opportunities, and uh, I would test all those capabilities. 
Um, I would throw out every breaching charge that I thought was possible. And um, I would record it with several angles from cameras, you know, and then I would write down a written report with the statistics on it. And I would give that to the client and go, okay, this is, these are my findings, okay? The system, um, you know, this is what you got. This is what you can have. You can buy, you know, I can sell you 45 seconds right now, but it's going to cost this much money, you know? Like and that's why yeah, that's yeah, what I did, you know. And I can tell you a minute. It, yeah. Oh yeah, and then you know, and then NRC would come in, and uh, they always come in with a special forces team, the red team. And uh, fortunately, I, I knew all these guys as well, right? Which is kind of funny. <laughs> and uh, so, like you know, we're now we're playing chess against each other, and they would come in, and I said, "Listen, you guys, you know, um, I set this up." You know what I know. I know what you know, right? And so, um, and they would look at it and go, "Yeah, that makes sense." You know, we couldn't, we can't breach that. We're, you know, we're, we might be Green Berets, but we're not, you know, Superman. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, it worked out pretty good, right? Because now, the, the design was validated. It was validated by the red teams. Um, you know, and and so, one of the facilities did a great job. It was actually Three Mile and I'll give credit to uh, the security manager at the time, Mike Bruce. He brought me in and my company in for a long time and we we built every part of the security structure every part of it man to include training their security officers um on not only combat marksmanship training but also on close quarter battle if they had to recapture recover for example the control room um it, they could actually go and come back and take it from the enemy right so it was like oh we're done you know so we did a lot of that type of training and um you know the the building infrastructure and all that and he brought in, I believe it was Discovery Channel or History Channel, one of those two. I think it was Discovery Channel he brought in. And they actually filmed everything we were doing, right? This was all deliberate. And it had, you know, I had, we had our shirts on, corporate shirts, you know, and and uh, and basically he told them, you know, I got Delta Force guys and Green Berets here that um, are, you know, uh, building our, uh, bolstering our security here. And, uh, and basically what the idea was, this will go out on Discovery Channel and hopefully, you know, you saw my bin Laden will look at it and go, fuck, you know, don't go to that plant. Yeah. You know, I got Delta guys there. Go to this one over here, yeah, right? Yeah, that yeah. was that was whole make himself basically, you know, he's gonna prove the world that he is actually doing and he actually did. And for him it wasn't uh, about the budget, it was about doing the right thing. Yeah. And he did the right thing, right? And so I would, I'm very proud of Three Mile Island and uh, you know, at least what it was. I don't know what the state is today, but uh, of the work that we did back then. So, and actually, all the facilities I went to, I feel pretty confident that uh, you know we just we made them much much better, and um, we made it much much harder for anybody to think about breaching them. So, nuclear powers are safe, so don't get scared. Um, there's a lot of redundancy out there um, in the systems, and uh, it's not easy to melt down a nuclear power plant. Um, it's just not, and uh, you know, they have a lot of backup systems to shut it down as quickly as they can, and and. Uh, in order for a nuclear power plant to, you know, to go haywire, it would have to be a coordinated effort with, you know, insiders, yeah. Confederates. It would, a lot of things would be going wrong on the inside, you know, at, as well. At so, that point, you have bigger problems. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, and so, and then there's another issue, right? Another issue is, um, you know, basically. Um, how do you vet your employees and make sure that they're mm -hmm. not? So this actually, I have knowledge of this, and I won't say when or who or okay. what plant, but this was a while back. But um, there was one facility they actually had a radicalized um, Muslim working in the facility. Okay, um, and he actually, he actually had been over to um, 
in Afghanistan and was training. How the fuck all right? does he get through? How does he apply? Well, that, that's the problem is, you know, he, there is a way to get through the system, even though he was vetted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are basically FBI background checks. So there's they're limited in their depth, right, as far as how much they can go chase around, right? Because they're expensive. And, uh, and and again, here we are, right? Nuclear power plants got to dole out a shit ton of money just to vet their employees. Um, you know, there's there's a cost associated with that. And so, and how good is it? Um, it's not always good. And it doesn't even matter, right? Because you, you could get a guy in a facility. This is why we're seeing all these, um, you know, all these mass shooters, right? Like going in a FedEx building, a post office. They work there. Now they're pissed off about something. They come back and shoot everybody, mm-hmm. right? So they, they might have started off as a good employee because that's what everybody always said. Well, you're such a he's nice a guy. guy. You're so quiet. Yeah. Yeah. He never had a problem. And like, what, what happened? Right. Yeah. So we don't know what's going on in people's freaking nugget up there. And, um, and it could happen in a nuclear power plant. You know, you could get some guy could be working there and get the ass one day. He sees something on TV. That's it. I'm going to get some revenge or payback. Right. Mm-hmm. And now he's radicalized. And, um, and man, he could introduce all kinds of things into, into a facility, um, to sabotage it and, or to, um, enable or facilitate, an external attack, right? So, so, so there's so many things that could happen. And uh, so you're limited on well, how, how far do you take security, right? There's a limit to the madness because at some point you can put so much security there that you're not even making a profit, yeah. right? It's yeah. not even worth it anymore, right? So it's balance. Yeah. It's always a, a balancing act. But um, I think sometimes um, we are too, we, got, we have too many rules in this country that, uh, you know, when it comes to employment, equal opportunity, and blah, 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 you know, that uh, we're almost, it's almost like we're afraid to discriminate, mm-hmm. you know, say you're not a good employee, you're not a good uh, a good choice for this job. Oh, you you know, whatever, it's discrimination, right? So I think people are afraid of that as well. And, uh, you know, and so the reality is, man, I think especially in, in these high-risk facilities or high-value targets like this, um, you know, there has to be a really thorough background investigation uh, and maybe even some annual, you know, annual ones, follow-up um, investigations, because you're entrusting employees with, you know, something could be just, de- you know, devastating the humankind, man. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you think about it, man. I mean, think about a nuclear power plant somewhere, you know, somewhere in the Midwest, and it freaking starts melting down, and all that radiation stuff starts going up into. Uh, um, the Gulf Stream, you know, it's freaking, it's going, it's going east around the world, <laughs> yeah. you know, and we're sprinkling radiation everywhere. Or they're doing it, the Germans are doing it to us, or the Chinese are doing uh-huh. it to us, right? And Japan, right? Yeah. So, but actually, nuclear power plants are super safe, man. I, I feel very confident that, you know, yeah, there's been a few that's melted down, um, but, uh, you know, they're getting better and better and better. And, um, and again, I would rather have, I'm okay with nuclear energy. You know, if you don't want to have, well, well, all right, put nuclear energy in my damn car, man. It's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm comfortable with that. So, yeah. uh, but anyways, so yeah, that's my little thing on nuclear power plants. Fuck yeah. Just, Thanks, Dale. <laughs> no, I've always, I've always been curious. To me, it's just, it, it's just wildly fascinating. Yeah, there is that, there is that trade off, right? At a certain, it's like the White House, right? The White House obviously has tiers of security, surveillance systems, bulletproof. You know, I'm sure the walls are blast proof. They've got a little bunker right under there, under the front lawn. That's where Truman had one put in. But at a certain point, when you start getting to 
you know, okay, you know, the White House could probably stop, you know, a 50 cal armor piercing. What about a JDAM? Well, it could probably, the bunker could probably stop a JDAM. Okay, what about a bunker buster? What about, right. a, what about a thermonuclear bunker buster? Right. But at a certain point, that's why they have just designated things where it's, okay, well, now, no, now we put the president in the helicopter. There's a bunker, you know, 10 minutes away that's 4,000 feet below rock. It's, yeah. you can't you can't well there is a way off you know and that's and that's not even a business that's the president so of course you're going to expend money now for me you know i have some hard drives i have some hard drives with all 426 episodes on them that's 426 days of my life that's a lot of work i have them they're wrapped in waterproofing they're wrapped in an emp bag that i got and they're in a fireproof safe I, there's no roi on that the, that that cost about two thousand bucks but yeah. At a certain point, it's like this is my well-being now. This apartment, this uh, podcast pays for my apartment. Right. I do have to. I do have to sink a certain amount in because if I don't, if it's gone, I'm fucked. But at the same time, it's like I'm not going to put it in a nuclear bunker that's going to survive a meltdown because you know if Dale wants right. to destroy my hard drives, <laughs> Dale's going to come destroy my hard drives. He's gonna he's gonna put some P factor on that safe and he's gonna burn through it with some thermite. But you know, it gets not that my hard drives are comparable to a nuclear power plant. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but uh, yeah, man. I appreciate it, Dale. I've always been interested in that. And uh, yeah. have have you ever have you for whatever? I mean, I imagine if anyone would, it be you. Have you ever done any like work or been out to like NORAD? Did they would they have? Would they bring you out there? You no, I've never, no, I've never been out there, but I've been uh, I've been to a lot of those places. You know, Area Fifty One uh, and, and that whole area. You've uh, been to Area Fifty One. Well, not inside of it, all around it, on the outside oh, of it, you know, in the desert. Um, oh. There is some weird stuff that goes on out there, though. I can tell you, I saw something one night that was really bizarre, and, uh, and there's no explanation for it. There was none. So I, basically what happened was I was in a vehicle, military vehicle in the desert, and it's flat desert except there was one, like, butte mm-hmm. in front of us, right? And uh, it's just one, though. It's just one in the whole damn desert. It didn't make any sense, but it's just one butte out there. And uh, as we're approaching it, uh, we were t- – so I remember they told us, okay, we had to wear these uh, – uh, what do you call it? Radio meters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to – yeah, we had these things on. And uh, they said stay out of any area that has a small fence around it, has a berm that's usually like uh, maybe 50 by 50 meters square um, because that's where they lowered a nuke, you know, for testing. Mm-hmm. And so – Okay, so we're driving at night, night vision goggles, and somehow we drove through into one of these pits, right? And I don't know what happened, if the barbed wire was broken or what, but we stopped and all the dust settles, and, and we're, like, <coughs> we're looking around, and, I, and I'm like, oh, shit, man, we're in one of these, one of these pits, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, radiation particles, uh, you know, was the alpha. Alpha, beta, um, gamma, yeah. Yeah, they, they lay just under the surface mm-hmm. of sand, right? And they just can stay there forever. So we're kicking up dirt and every dust and everything. Oh, my God, right? So as I'm sitting there, I look at the butte, and uh, on the back side of the butte, I see this this light, like super bright light, go up, like it's going up and just kind of hovering, right? Just kind of hovers, and I'm like, "Holy shit, what is that?" Right? And uh, it wasn't a helicopter because we were close enough. If it was a helicopter, I could hear it. Or an aircraft, it just kind of went, it came up, and just bubbling around like this, and then uh, we actually drove. Tried to drive around the backside to see what it was. It was gone. Right? It, it, the butte was the same all the way around. There was nothing there. This thing just popped up behind it. And then as we started to drive around it, it 
it was gone, disappeared. And uh, I, I can't even explain what that was, or it was not it was not a flying machine from anything that human beings made, for sure. But it was a bright light. It was really, yeah. really weird. Fuck yeah. Yeah, UFOs, uh, baby. Oh yeah, they're out there, man. I know they're out there. hundred um, percent there. Dude, I've had on I've had on former Air Force guys, drone operators, who talk about training out in New Mexico. And they're like, man, I like I remember driving back from like to the base one night from like the train like the Connex boxes they have where they train. Yeah. He's like, dude, we came back one and these are like trained these guys are the operators of it, right? MQ the MQ ones and the MQ nines. And they're like, man, we saw like a, a it looked like a star, but it like wasn't moving the whole night. And the rest of the stars are moving. And finally, like we had seen it kind of like in the evening, and as we're driving, we're still looking at it, we're like, there that thing is. What and they said I think they described described it as like a spark coming off like a like a grinding wheel like if you know yeah. sharpening a yeah. like, they said like that but then it wasn't that it was quick it just yeah. over the horizon i mean yeah. i mean it, it, you do the math it would have to come out to like Mach 500 they were looking yeah. at it they said they looked at each other and they're like yeah no one's going to believe us <laughs> it doesn't matter well, no you know, you know that they're, they're supposed to be publishing another um, yeah in June another report yeah in June right mm-hmm. and really talking about it. but already man I mean there there's stuff on there that the Air Force and others uh-huh. are confirming like uh, video image from pilots where they're literally following obstacle flying obstacles that suddenly do right angle turns and are moving at at uh, Mach uh, Mach fifty I think yeah. right except uh, any uh, any human aircraft fighter jet with a pilot maximum is Mach 17 or G's and uh, it's that, that anything faster would completely destroy the aircraft and controls of course kill the pilot mm-hmm. um, and he said these things are making you know turns of 50 G's plus uh, you know incredible amounts of speed yeah and um, I'm like wow that's pretty intriguing but it sounds it's starting to sound more and more that the government is like okay okay and I do believe that the government intentionally did not tell people because can you imagine what would happen if, for example, Christians, all right, you know, and, and true Christians believe that there's only one God, mm-hmm. there's only human beings, he made heaven and earth, right, blah, 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 there's no other life, it's just Adam and Eve and us, right, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's always an argument that there, we won't find life anywhere else because God only yeah, created yeah. us. So what would that do to the narrative if they find life on another planet and or other life comes and visits us, right? Aliens. That would be a real problem for almost all religions, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and so well, if you have now all of a sudden, there's, there's even, just think about the problems with, you know, people, one, being in disbelief, two, the conspiracies and, oh, my God, you know, this is the devil has arrived, you mm-hmm. know, and, all the issues that go with it because people are man most people are just naive man they're just gullible and they're fearful and and uh, we're watching it go we watch it play out in front of us every day but uh i think they deliberately kept that information so that uh, there, there is not chaos but uh, i think we're at a point now where you know they're gonna have to come out with it um and, and who knows? Maybe it's part of a bigger plan, mm-hmm. you know. But could you imagine if aliens just showed up today, like all of a sudden, like you know, in World of the Worlds, you know, yeah. all of a sudden you start showing up? Um, what that would do to the whole world, man, the whole system, the economies, and everything, man. I mean, holy it, shit! It would, it would, 
Yeah, uh, what I was gonna say is, um, yeah, the the, the right hand turns. Uh, yeah, there's only so many G's a human can stay conscious for, and then there's only so many yeah. G's that our materials can survive. Now, if we created right. drones, our drones could do maneuvers that pilots can't. But then, even then, the metamaterial science is only so far to where you. It's like why they can't shoot. It's why they can't. They tried to in the uh, 50s and 60s. Excalibur. They wanted to shoot uh, satellites from a, a cannon try to save on rockets and the reality is, is it was a hundred thousand g's to get to orbit and they could like a yeah. battleship is something like ten thousand g's and it just can't survive um what commander fravor said is when they was chasing the tic tac in 2004 off the uss nimitz of san diego it went from a uh, hovering standstill to over the horizon they said even a, an sr-71 blackbird going at mach 3 still takes about 60 to 90 seconds to go from next to you to over the horizon the x-15 yeah fastest rocket or manned uh rocket jet that ever flew in mach 7 that would take a little shorter this thing went in like 0.2 seconds um and then yeah with the navy coming out with the uss nimitz and then now more recently the uh the pyramid shaped ufos over the naval destroyers and stuff that the pentagon is confirming i mean man the brookings institute that think tank in dc they came out with a uh they came out with a a publication, uh, I think, chartered or contracted or purchased, whatever, by NASA uh, prior to the 1969 moon landing. But after JFK's speech saying we're going to go to the moon, the Brookings Institute came out and said, uh, if you find remnants of an alien civilization, I swear to God, if you find remnants of another civilization on the moon, whether it's whether it's modern or whether it's uh, archaic, you know, an old fucking whatever on the far side of the moon, they said, do not disclose it, for it will crash the world economy and the world religions. And for whatever reason, they centered on Buddhism. They said the Buddhists would be most upset, which is kind of weird. But the point is, is they said that religions will collapse and the economy will collapse. And this is chartered by NASA in like yeah. 1964. Hey, if you find remnants of alien structures on the far side of the moon, just don't mention it. Yeah. And that just kind of never gets brought up, that that was an actual concern of the chiefs of NASA. So right. I don't know, man. To me, I always look at the I always look at the technological conspiracy. Yeah, that would probably crash the world's economy. But at the same time, you know, we did eventually learn that the world isn't flat. We did eventually learn that, like, uh, you know, fires aren't from a vengeful God. It's just, you know, you didn't put out <laughs> a cigarette. I think the world will come to terms with it. I think there's an energy conspiracy. If you have something that got from another star system and came to our planet, that means it's got a really efficient energy source. That really efficient energy source completely negates the need for you to use gasoline and diesel. The petrodollar is the strongest power system in the world. Not nukes, not bombers. You have the world by the balls. You can turn off the gas at any given moment. If you have an alien thing show up with a faster energy source or a better energy source than that which ExxonMobil provides, hey, Uncle Sam's not in charge anymore. That's what I think yeah. it is. It's a, it's a, but we are now going way off into the weeds, Dale. We had now well, have to, we now I, have to do a I, UFO video. We have to do a UFO actually, episode. Actually, you're not off the weeds because we started out talking about nuclear power oh, plants. Oh yeah, you're right. And did you know that a lot of these sightings are around nuclear, nuclear facilities plants, and nuclear yeah. sites, right? Yeah. There seems to be an interest, yeah. uh, concentration on nuclear power plants, right? I, Dale, <laughs> fuck, I need to send you the episodes I've done with uh, Larry Larry Holcomb. He's this older gentleman in his, uh, I think, 80s, author of Presidents and UFOs. It's a great audio book, or just listen to that. But that's one of the big things is Minot, uh, was it North Dakota, the ICBM base uh, in, uh, I think, Germany? 
they go to either nuclear power plants, the other interest of theirs is both in the Soviet Union and the United States, the UFOs, and this is all the classified shit from the Air Force, not me. Yeah. They go to ICBM silos and they they, they would shut them down. And to them, it was, it was their yeah. showing, hey, don't use nukes. Don't use nukes. That was their thing. And the other thing I always bring up is this an analogy I use. When I was a freshman in high school, me and my friends were at, at, at his mom's house and we were shooting, you know, we were dipshits. We were shooting bottle rockets into people's lawns, lighting them on fire and stuff. Just a bunch of little 14-year-old assholes. And then like 20 minutes later, the cops came by and we hid, we hid under his car and we were looking out and the cops went by with flashlights and stuff. So what was that? We were causing a disturbance. A, an amount of time passed. And the cops came by. They didn't come by to our exact house, but they came by to our nearby location and they looked around. So keep that model in your head. What did we do on July 16th, 1945? We set off the Trinity A-bomb in Alamogordo, New Mexico. August 6th and August 9th, we set them off in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively. All right? What happened almost two years later, in July 1947, almost two years to the day later, was the Roswell sighting. How far is Roswell from Alamogordo, New Mexico? 119 miles to me that looks like there's a time distance two years they came really close nearby on the surface of the whole world they came within 119 miles of everywhere else in the world they came within 119 miles of where the nukes went off does that not look like the inter intergalactic cops coming by and shining a flashlight <laughs> hey what are you fuckers setting off i don't know well, you know no i've actually heard it so it you know, when we talk about uh, metaphysics and um, you know, talk about energy, you know, so the whole universe is energy. Everything mm -hmm. is energy. Everything's interconnected, interrelated. Oh. You know, and uh, you know, we talk what in my in my, my my the stuff that I do. We talk mm -hmm. about the uh, unified intelligence of the world, and uh, the theory is that there are aliens out there that do have a special interest in our use of nuclear weapons mm -hmm. because when nuclear weapons go off, the frequency from those weapons. Yeah. Right, will continue to um, propagate throughout the universe, mm -hmm. okay, and will affect other systems, mm -hmm. you know, a bigger system, systems that we don't even know of. But yes. that's the theory is like this would have a profound effect on the entire universe, not just on the planet Earth. Yeah, it's, um, so, it's, well, I was going to say Richard Rhodes in his book Dark Sun, making of the hydrogen bomb, not with just atomic bombs, but with the big <laughs> ones, the thermonuclear bombs. They have a neutron density or a neutron flash. I'm too stupid to understand it. 10 million times denser than that of a supernova. So these are these are sending off flashes throughout the universe that are going forever. So, I mean, this is like, again, bottle rockets. Me and my friends shooting off bottle rockets. But we're waking up everyone in the neighborhood. We might be pissing off some doctor that has to get up at 5 a.m. And that's someone said that in a documentary about UFOs or some physicist that said, it might have been Mishio Kaku, who's like a super renowned Harvard physicist. He said, yeah. he said, what we're setting off, he goes, we see the big bomb and the crater and the radiation and then whatever. He goes, we might be doing damage on like levels of reality that we don't even know exist. So, right. you know, what we see as a nuke might only be 1% of the damage. We might be fucking up other people's worlds and they're going, what the hell are you doing? And it might be going yeah. Through, yeah, throughout the whole universe. We might be 
you know, we might be destabilizing countless civilizations. And they're going, who are these new guys on the block swinging their, <laughs> swinging their dick around, dropping nukes off? And it's who knows, man, maybe they saw you going out there, Dale, and they, they look at you as a threat. And that's why that little thing popped up. And they're like, uh, uh-uh, uh, who's this mother? We've been following this guy, Dale. He gets in trouble. We've, we've left him alone, but now he's getting near nukes. Uh, uh-uh. Dale, we're, we're cutting you off. We're cutting you off, Dale. Well, man, well, now we have to do what we need to schedule that you and I, Dale, we need to go full in on UFOs. I didn't know that you had an interest in them. So that. Yeah, actually, I had a a production (sighs) company a few years ago wanted me to be a host on a on a show that basically alien hunters, Uh what it was going to be, you know, it never came to fruition. But um, yeah, I thought that would be kind of cool. You know, I love (laughs) I love I love them and I love trying to approach them in an actual scientific manner, not just people, little green men. No, I try to look at them. I'm like credible guys. I mean, Harry S. Truman, flying saucers, given that they exist, are not created by any power on Earth. Gerald Ford, I know UFOs are real. I've seen one. I mean, Jesus Christ, General MacArthur, World War Three. Everyone knows the Einstein quote. I know not what World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with six and stones. General MacArthur has a lesser known quote: World War Three will be an interplanetary war. General yeah. MacArthur. No one ever talks about that. General fucking yeah. MacArthur. I mean, Jesus Christ, it just kind of slides right under the right under yeah. uh, the head. Not Werner von Braun, but the guy below him. I think Arthur Rudolph uh, uh, of the the Nazi rocket program said, and I'm going to butcher it. He said, aliens exist, UFOs exist, and they're scouting out our planet for either scientific intrigue, much like we look at, you know, a new rock or a new lizard, and they're here watching us, but without a doubt in my mind, they're here and they're watching us. I mean, it's yeah. at a certain point, it starts to melt your brain. Like, yeah. but fuck yeah, Dale Comstock and I are going to do a UFO episode. That is... Let's do it. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> Dale Comstock, I love you, brother. Everyone, go get his book, American Badass, which Dale... If he knows what's good, we'll get it narrated. We'll get it on Audible. I mean, goddamn, uh, Dale, you need to do it, man. You need to do it. Well, I'm, I'm in the process of writing these I other know, books, still, I you know. know but I know, I'll I know. figure it out. You got to figure it out. <laughs> Dale Comstock, go get his book, American Badass. I'll put the training websites below here for his courses and go follow his Instagram. It's always funny. I always love watching it. And uh, yeah, guys, thanks for tuning in. Dale Comstock, motherfucking American Badass. I'll see you next week. Oh, Rob. All right. All right, Dale. Take care, buddy. (laughs) Bye-bye. Peace. Peace.